Hello and welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast. My name is Oliver Patel and I'm a research assistant with UCL Grand Challenges. I'm joined today by two of my fellow co-authors on the report. So Siobhan Morris, who is the lead author from the UCL Grand Challenge of Justice and Equality and Olivia Stevenson from UCL Public Policy. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Ollie. So today we're going to talk about language, which is the first of the five themes which we identified in our report as really important for understanding and tackling inequalities. So why language? Well, it's quite interesting, the language you just used to introduce Siobhan and I, my fellows. I mean, one could read that as you're introducing two men when we're both <laughs> two females. So in essence, we have so much in the English language which is implicit and taken for granted and interestingly there was an Equality and Human Rights Commission language group founded to look at exactly this type of thing. You know, why does English matter? What are the assumptions based within language that we use? And actually they found, you know, often it's white, male, heterosexual, non-disabled, married and of European extraction. So given that the population isn't purely made up of those characteristics. What's lost? Who's not included? What happens when we try to use different forms of language to describe inequality? So language really is at the heart of everything. It's how we communicate, it's how we create identities, it's how we are both inclusive and exclusive. So for us, language is key to how we can actually begin to tackle structural and relational inequalities. Language matters not only in terms of what's evidenced, but also in terms of perceptions. So the rhetoric used by politicians has been in the news a lot recently with um, debates around the use of the phrase surrender act and whether that's been fueling or making debates arguably even more polarised. So regardless of the kind of semantics of language, there is also a further point to be made around how language influences perceptions of inequality as well, whether there's seen to be progress in this area. One of the things which is argued in the report is that language in itself acts as a barrier for disadvantaged people and acts as a form of disadvantage in itself. So can you just explain a bit about how can language hold people back? I think it's slightly more nuanced than that in terms of I think language can act as a barrier if we are advocating, as we do in the in the reports, that impactful research and policy making necessarily has to include and draw upon the voices of those experiencing inequalities, then there's obviously a need to actually talk to and engage with disadvantaged groups. But if those groups, whether they be, for example, immigrant communities or disabled people, if they can't communicate, then in that regard, language can in itself be a structural barrier. How can political parties and political ideologies use language to maybe make it seem like, well, there isn't really much to see here. We're tackling these issues, you know, whether it's within welfare, within education, how can language be used by politicians to sort of, you can hide behind language almost? Well, we all know that there is political spin and people like to have a good news story. And actually, often you do need positivity to say that things are changing to enable us to look at 
what still needs to be done. Mm. I don't think always starting with a negative message and saying that the government isn't doing enough. It's actually quite the opposite. However, I suppose we have to think about and not be lazy with the language that we use. Often mm. terms are not interrogated. They are sort of assumed and appropriated and thought that that is how everybody speaks, how everybody thinks of the disadvantages that they face, how everybody thinks about the privileges that they have. And so I think it's about just being more careful and being more attuned to the society in which a politician is trying to serve or a policy is trying to enhance and to ensure that nobody is left behind from speaking or being able to speak on these issues. And the report really examines language in terms of its effect on what evidence is captured and its effect on data sets explicitly, thinking about how in central UK government there is a social mobility commission which is using the phrase social mobility, obviously. There is the government equalities office using the term equalities. There or there will be at some point, the new Office for Tackling Injustices, which is obviously using the word injustice. But we are not advocating that there is one correct term to use. There is one correct way of speaking about inequalities. I suppose our report rather seeks to pose the question of what's lost in policymaking terms by using such a wide range of terms, as Olivia said, kind of throwing language about without really thinking through what effect that might have on evidence gathering. Can data sets speak to one another, for want of a better term, if they're actually all using slightly different terminology? How can the government track change and positive change over time towards tackling some of these issues if they're all meaning ever so slightly different things by the terms that they're using. So just to follow up on that, do you think language is one of the ways in which this issue of government departments and agencies not collaborating or working together enough to tackle inequalities, do you think that language and issues surrounding names and definitions is a part of that problem? I think it's the lack of time an availability to interrogate what is behind the terms that we use. It's not a question that we are calling for everybody to use the same term, for there to be a singular use of terms. It's more that we are calling for people to understand on what basis they are using those terms and what they are meaning when they are describing equalities. One of the arguments which the report put forward was that we should be referring to inequalities plural as opposed to inequality singular. So can you just explain a bit about why that's important? What do you mean by that? It is a slight nuance, absolutely, we recognise that. Um, but I actually think it's a really significant one in that it's trying to get at the multiple dimensions, the multiple disadvantages that fall under the word inequality or inequalities. It's to show that lots of people are affected within this issue, not a single population. So it's trying to kind of highlight the lived experience and the different lived experiences of inequalities. So thinking about when we consider equalities in terms of identities, 
thinking about the ownership of the language used by the individual, the group, community, that's of great importance. Thinking about making sure that the language used to describe inequalities originates from those groups themselves and isn't seen to be imposed on them. So if I understand correctly, you're not saying that governments or policymakers should adopt a specific rhetoric or discourse. You're saying that they should be listening to those communities which they seek to serve through their policies and drawing from the language which they use themselves. So that links in nicely to the theme of voice that we also have in the report. So can you talk a bit about how the themes of voice and language are connected? Yes, I think that's exactly the point that we're making, encouraging awareness of language originating from those who are experiencing disadvantage and then thinking about a voice and how you amplify that and how you ensure that you're not just listening to those who are experiencing disadvantage but you're actively including their views in policy making and in research agendas. So listening is great, including their voice is great but that's only one step. The next step has to be actioning on what they say, not just kind of speaking to them, but speaking with them and ensuring that they are fundamentally part of policy making and research agendas. And if we, you know, take this to the nth degree, if we have parity within labour markets, if we have parity of people within policy-making spheres, actually we will have greater diversity of voice, greater diversity of experience bringing to bear on what we're doing in policy terms. And therefore, language will naturally, hopefully, evolve to take account of different people's lived experiences as they are within these employment spheres. And just briefly thinking a bit about researchers, because we're also aiming this report not just at policymakers, but at researchers and people who are thinking about these issues every day. How can they take on board some of the points that we've made about language? How can this help people do better or more nuanced research on the issue of inequalities? I mean, we've already seen a great shift I think, in in research to what could be termed co-production, thinking about designing your research projects, your research questions, your research methodology and your research outputs with the communities in which you're seeking to make a difference. I think things have absolutely changed there. But I think we have further to go. And I actually think that research institutions have a responsibility to include in their infrastructure from their ethics committees to their funding bodies to the ways that universities are run a diverse workforce to help make these issues and the experiences come to the fore. And I also think, as Siobhan has so beautifully articulated, that it's about really understanding about working with and, in a sense, giving over your research, allowing your questions to be truly designed by your research participants, really having a true partnership rather Mm. than a transactional relationship. And, you know, deep down, do you think that this is something which we can achieve. Can we get other academics or researchers to do this? Do you think it's realistic? It's a culture shift, absolutely. Some disciplines are potentially uh, more there than others. 
but I think it is achievable and I think we can't afford not to because actually it shouldn't be an us and them mentality. We have a lot to be gained from having a diversity in our research sector and our research agendas because ultimately that will help to create a better society for all. So I think it's something that can be achieved and something we cannot afford not to. We see this as bringing immense benefit to researchers. By no means should this be seen as a kind of imposition or something which is uh, another thing to be added to a researcher's to-do list. That's not what we are in any way suggesting and we hope that that's clear. So I think it's the same point that Olivia made for policy applies to research. Encouraging a better conception and understanding of terms across disciplines. So thinking about how measurements of inequality in the field of planning and housing, how can those terms be mapped on and applied to somebody working in health, for example? If we have a better understanding and better cross-disciplinarity of working, then presumably our data and evidence can also be used in more productive ways. So. That's where we see real benefit rather than this being a kind of rigid imposition of we should all be using one term. Well, on that note, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Siobhan Morris, Olivia Stevenson, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Ollie. Ollie.